everyone welcome back to the left page i am frank your always online historian academic and writer today we're gonna have another author visit we haven't had one of those in a while he's also a writer academic and even fellow podcaster of the excellent left hand of leguin so please welcome the excellent kyle winkler as we chat a bit about his latest novel boris says the words welcome kyle hello frank thank you for having me this is excellent i'm honored to be on here talking with you about the about the book it's a it's quite a book and yeah. <laughs> I, I just realized the hilarity of having two followed up one episode right after the other with two different and also great kyle yeah so, you know. the the renaissance kyle sans trying to bring the it back kyle sans there we go I, yeah yeah that's i'm gonna write that somewhere <laughs> that's probably so when horrible. i release the episode erase that i'm not Edit sure if it. it'll make Cut the that title out. yeah it's too bad no it's bad that's horrible <laughs> get rid of it <laughs> we'll see we'll see so <laughs> this i think this is the most recent sort of book release that, that or recent book that i've ever talked about because I've, I've talked about stuff that has been released like recently mm-hmm. and with authors and stuff but like this one was like it's not even a year so it's fresh off the presses oh yeah i don't know i mean like may so it's not even i don't even think it's two months old yet that's pretty yep, new that's that's something yeah very. it's a new record there you go so uh, this is not a simple question but uh, <laughs> how do you define this novel because you define it quite a lot on twitter and i think all of those are correct yeah but just so like i know this is both for people who haven't read it for people to read it and people who may not be their thing or whatever but it's like it's <laughs> to let people know what we're talking about right so this is not an unusual question for this book mostly because when i so this was written before all the other things I've published. Um, oh. Both, yeah. So Boris Says the Words was a novel that started back in the summer of mm, 2008, actually. So it's a very, it's wow. 14 years ago. I started, initially it was a novella, which is about a character on a train that was going across the uh, Asian continent. And so that was pretty much, and that, that is still in the book as it's published now, just in a very sort of different <laughs> form. And uh, I, believe it or not, uh, had been reading a boatload of Chekhov at the time and still love Chekhov. In <laughs> fact, in the ravine, which is one of his longer, later stories uh, that he published towards the end of his life, is one of my favorite pieces of fiction ever. And I trope on the f- first line of that story slash novella which was originally the first line of the book but then i changed and it's now it's like the it's a it's a cross between the second and the third line um the first paragraph of the book is balm was unmoored balm is the village that this book starts off in if strangers asked pavel said it was the village where cats refuse death or he said it was the village where men lose fist fights to dogs um the first line of In the Ravine is something like um, the village of Uklievo lay in a ravine 
where only the tops of the fabric factory smokestacks could be seen or something like that. And the and this one is something like the village of Balm slept under oppression with only the crumbling TV antennas and the smokestacks of the brick factory, et cetera, et cetera. So I just replaced a couple of words. <laughs> and because Chekhov's dead and there's no copyright, I can't be sued. Yay. Yay. And uh, it's called an allusion, people. Look it up, okay? <laughs> um, <clears throat> no, I, I, I needed that to kind of think about what I was doing. So anyway, the, the original part started. I'm answering your question. It's taken a while. It started yeah, off. It started off as a realist thing. I didn't really have anything that was going to be um, odd or magical or fabulous about within the book. And then as I carried it along, you know, you heard the story where like uh, I'm not comparing myself to him. I'm just using this example. Da Vinci carried like the Mona Lisa around with him for like years. Have you heard the story? And like he would like tinker with it and like change the sfumato or the chiaroscuro here and there. He'd like add this and remove that. And that what that's what this book was, was I just kept it with me and I would change this and I would add this and then, you know, I would let it sit for a while and then I go and revise it again. And then um, it constantly was sort of morphing and changing. And then at some point I realized that I, there was a story where I wanted to have the sort of magical realist or fabulist quality. With, with the words right where you would be able there would yeah. be people who would say a certain chain of words over t and then you'd be able to heal somebody but my idea was that okay how can i constrict that and make it more interesting if you heal somebody the disease can leave that sick person but it has to go into to another person and and who that person is is unstated or, or uncontrollable to some degree and so there was the thing and then that once that happened then that started the characters started coming along more and things changed and and so I I originally had thought of it as a literary novel just that had some sort of a you know fabulous element in it but when I started sending it out to agents to try to get representation many years ago people would say they liked it but they didn't know what to do with it mm, which is a yeah. pretty typical response to things that I think people in traditional literary publishing really enjoy, but they know in their heart of hearts that the marketing department at the at the publishing company is just not going to have a good way to yeah. market it. Which is what you're asking, right? Because the question is like, how do we market it? Where do we put it? What shelf do I put it on? Do I put it on sci-fi yeah. or literary? Do I put it under horror? Do I put it under... Uh, there is no magical realism shelf and there's no fabulous shelf, but I mean, is it like... So that's why I just compare it to other people. Um, so... Mm -hmm things that I was reading and things that I was thinking about and books that I considered to be a part of that. I mean, I put this in the back of the book. I don't know if you saw that list. Yeah. There, you know, things like Bologna, Roberto Bologna's uh, 2666 or Distant Star or uh, Zabal, Joy Williams, Toni Morrison's Paradise specifically. Um, Dickens, Philip K. Dick, you know, mm -hmm. all these things, which... You know, how do you describe any of those authors? How do you describe Toni Morrison? What's she? She's obviously literary, but she's also got magic in her books. But she also has yeah. horror in her books. But she also has, you know, it, it's all over the place. And so um, I don't – on the back of the book, I think I said it's uh, – I don't know what I said. Did I – I didn't actually use – oh, I said it's a cockeyed novel of lunatic speculative vision touched by elements of horror and science fiction and sad, sad, sad. That's actually my favorite part. If someone was like, what kind of book is this? I'd say it's a sad book. But um, it has all yeah. of those. It's definitely speculative in the sense that 
which is a really sort of all-encompassing label. And I know some people don't like that, but it really is a part of that, mostly because of the nuclear uh, energy aspect of the book. One of the things I had from the very beginning and that carried through was an idea that I figured this was back in 2008. So this is pre-Fukushima, by the way. Oh. So I, because Fukushima was 2011, I think, Mm -hmm. that I was thinking what's going to happen is, and pre-everything with Russia right now too, I I was thinking Putin's going to go crazy and he's going to build a bunch of unstable nuclear reactors all across every part of the land he could. Uh, Germany and France were just getting into it, and I thought, and we were still really resistant. We still really are resistant to it. And and I don't actually I don't know what nuclear energy is like in the global south. I don't know if it's like in South America. It there's a, there are complicated histories. There are there there there, ha, there have been radioactive accidents, um, not to that same level, but in, in usually in terms of like decommissioning and proper disposal of stuff mm. that that have gotten a lot of people dead but from there there have been accidents but not i guess not to the same level of scale or scale right Uh, at least just thinking in brazil in terms of brazil but i'm sure it's it it might be the case but on a lesser scale because of the the large amount of resources right right that it takes to build that kind of thing right so i thought well um that's what would happen is because they're so careless especially from what happened in chernobyl um, and as I was thinking about all that, and I wanted that to be a part of it, that there'd be all this really fast and loose nuclear energy popping up all over. A friend of mine gave me Svetlana Alexievich's book, Voices from Chernobyl, which yeah. is changed my life, um, in a very odd way, not only in the way that she told the book, her sort of style of oral history, but just got me thinking about pockets of history that we don't know about there's so much of the world that goes on and that we're blind to and and so i started thinking about this and i wanted to exercise that both exorcise and exercise that and so (laughs) so yeah anyway that i would just i it's a long answer because i don't have a simple answer but i think if anything i would say it is a spec it's just speculative fiction really it's like what would happen if we went that way and i think there are elements of real speculation through science and technology there but on the other half it's sort of like what would also happen if this totally fantastical uh metaphysical fabulous notion of being able to heal people with words was also real and so then you smash those together and that's what you got but i would say anybody who enjoyed any of those names that i mentioned would probably like this if you like science fiction if you like horror if you like just sort of light fabulism you know that's all in there I, i think it lures you in with the sort of like um literary fiction that that kind of style at first right. and then things start uh unwinding in, in the uh, I, I i put it as a compliment um yeah no on purpose too yeah exactly yeah. And, and things start getting stranger and stranger and uh i mean it starts off interesting but i think you know there's like a lot of books and a lot of good books and this one included like uh the, the second part or further parts inside of the book tend to resignify those beginning sections and I think that happens here. And, and that's why it's like, uh, I'll be honest, it's, it started a bit slow for me, but eventually it picked up a lot. And then I read like the rest of it in like two or three days. Uh. Yeah, I think that is the risk with this book. And I think the, the big movement now, at least book world and publishing 
is always worried about the first 50 pages, maybe even the first yeah. 30, 30 pages. And yeah. to some degree, I sympathize, right? We live in a fast world. People have limited time and they need to make decisions. And if you're not going to, you know, keep me going in the first 30, 50 pages, then why should I stick around? I, I get that. And if people put the book down for that, then, you know, I no harm, no foul. But, mm -hmm. you know, I would say that I try to put things in that will keep people around. You know, the, 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 the first three pages, there's a there's a <laughs> crazy thing that happens to this woman's um, sort of tumble down ramshackle hut thing. Something falls out of the sky and lands on it. I won't tell people what it is um, if you want to keep that secret. But um, yeah, I know there's just constantly little small things that go in there. And so I, I get what you're saying, though. Yeah, like I think because like regardless, like I, I was going to read it for the show, of course. So I was, was going to read it. Yeah, go ahead. But I, the words, I, I feel like for me, like you hook me properly with the whole thing about words and mm -hmm. language and stuff. And it's like, yeah, no, that, I was, I was going to see that through. Uh, regardless yeah and you know what that actually came it's because you were, we were talking about Le Guin we share an affinity for Le Guin is that I had not read Earthsea when I started this and started developing it was until after uh. and I realized that people would think that I was trying to rip her off or something because she was using a very sort of anything that has magical words in it is sort of similar you know I mean like prayer in a way is like magical words but this was properly yeah. like changing physical world with words and that which is what Le Guin does in her in her books mm -hmm. and so I was always trying to link it to Le Guin as I was trying to sell it out in the world too like oh this is you know inspired by that and wasn't I don't know why I said that because I was just trying to borrow her clout I shouldn't have done that but that's understandable it's it's <laughs> it's the marketing of books which is uh, that know, nightmare it's, thing it's horrible yeah I mean like I've, I've mentioned this before in terms of like uh, you know reading so little like I I was in a literary contest what like in 2020 mm -hmm. and they've got like it, it was for novels and they just they got like i don't know over 60,000 manuscripts or something for like five different categories like novel comic books and, and the other three and like i i know like they didn't read all of all of the things and like yeah. you get it but it still sucks yeah that's a lot i don't know how contests freak me out they, they they're a scary thing like i i mean a, a normal submission is scary enough the yeah. contest is like and i don't know i i'm still kind of spiteful about that whole thing because <laughs> uh, and i'll well i'll, I'll tell you why later okay because uh, uh, i've mentioned it before it's not important here and i don't want to take away from boris and boris says the words <laughs> I, I i write i've been writing in like a journal thing just to make sure of like tasks i need to do because i do a lot of stuff at the same time mm -hmm. and i I sort of shorthand refer to things. So I've always referred to this novel as Boris. So, mm -hmm. you know, Boris. I do too. Boris, no, I do too. That's, that's, yeah. how I, that's how I do it. I shorten everything all the time, so it makes sense to me. But I, I think that's a pretty great, like, introduction to what, or a lot of what the novel is. Like, I, I mean, when you mention at the end, um, oh, Svetlana, because I'm going to read some of her stuff for my uh, academic research group. Yeah, great. And from what I know of her, because like, I've heard of her books and her work before, we're going to read Zinky Boys. Yeah. So uh, I'm excited for it. Yep. And uh, when I read that at the end, she mentioned, it's like, oh, of course. N that, that, made it, that made the book have more sense in terms of, like, I don't know, place or tradition. Like, right. Like, that's weird kind of thing because, you know, we, we talk about literature and we think about that all the time. But I'm like, yeah, no, I, 
yeah, this makes sense. Yeah, no, she really placed. Uh, I mean, of course, you know, we know about Chernobyl. You know, I was very little when it happened, uh, mm-hmm. so I, I was not aware of it in the moment. But um, just a few years afterwards, when I sort of like my historical brain came on, and I realized there was past, present, and future, and you realize what was going on, I made sense to me. I understood what radioactivity was. I knew, you know, we don't go there. You know, but it wasn't until much later that, um, you know, I think you, you watch uh, Stalker by Tarkovsky or you watch, you know, you uh, – there's so much stuff that's influenced by it. But it really was sort of like reading that book and, and trying to understand what happened and why it happened and what was going on. And, um, yeah, it was just – that book sort of cemented the direction of the of Boris for for – I mean, I don't know most of the time I was working on it. So, but um, that makes sense. Yeah. Along with other research, I did do a lot of research for the book. I did like, uh, I read up on a lot of like Russian, uh, metaphysical stuff, Russian, uh, witches, uh, like anthropological articles on the culture of like folk magic, read a little bit about Rasputin, read a little bit about, you know, like, I don't know. I was a Russophile at the time. I, 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 I probably would be canceled if I said that now. But at the time, um, I was reading all about, you know, the czars, and I was obsessed with, you know, all that other type of stuff. It was very interesting to me. And trains. Yeah, I'm obsessed, right. obsessed with trains, which was a big part of it. You know, I, I loved trains. I wanted to be on a train. I wanted to ride on a train. And I had subsequently, you know, done all these really long trips across the country, um, the States anyway. And... uh and so I was just trying to like put all these things in there. And uh, I don't know. I think it came out okay. I was really worried there for a while, though, because like I said, I tried to get representation for it and sell it. And people were very uh, – had kind words for it. But there was just no uptick. And then when I did get representation, I tried to you know beat the book into shape to say, hey, I got this thing here um, outside of what I had been – you know, doing, and do you want to try that? And again, it was sort of like, yeah, but no, like, we don't really know what to do with that. So I was like, I'm going to be damned if I'm going to let the novel sit around because (laughs) I had started letting other people close to me read it and saying, hey, is this something? Like, is this worthwhile? Is this something that I could do something with? This was after I'd published uh, The Nothing That Is because I had done that on a lark just to try and see if I could do the self-publishing thing especially in the horror subgenre because mm-hmm. um, horror was people was where people were really doing a lot of the self-publishing. And, yeah. and I thought, you know, maybe that would work. And the people who I had sent this to were like, uh, yeah, why the hell has nobody taken this? And that sort of gave me confidence. I trusted them. And, and I thought, you know, this is, I've had great readership for the nothing that is, and even the short story collection, O Pain that came out in the fall. And I knew that this would not get the kind of attention or the type of readership just because, A, it's – I mean, it's thicker. It takes time to read it and it's it's written differently and it's not as fast-paced and it's – you know, but that's fine. I don't really care. No, of course. But, like, I I agree with that that sentiment because, like, yeah, it's it's very particular. It's very strange in a lot of ways, but it doesn't feel that unmarketable, I think. It's so – in these days, I don't think anything is anymore. But that's why I'm saying, like, Good I just point. need, I just need some really high-powered Twitter star to like hold up a picture of it and be like, "Hey, let's option this, or let's everybody read this book, or whatever." Just I need some kind of wackadoo person to like 
you know, I, I hate saying that. That's what everybody thinks is going to work. I will tell you this, though, by the way. Twitter interactions do not sell books, right? So, yeah, you know, you can go viral with, like, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of likes, and then you can go check your sales, and it's, like, two copies or something. So I don't worry about that anymore. Yeah, that's good. I mean, yeah. I think I hope people, especially, you know, it's like downloads doesn't equate to purchases either, unfortunately. Yeah. But I do hope if people are interested, they check it out. It's... I'm going to say this again later and multiple times, but it's worth reading. Like, and it's good. And I say this, <laughs> yeah. And I say this as someone who was not sort on in that stuff at first. Yeah. Like, genuinely, I'll be honest with you. Like, at first, like, I don't know. I don't know. But I was like, no, no. Oh, oh, this is interesting. So I think it's it's a great book. Good. I'll say it. Thank you. I appreciate that. It starts uh, off not, not great, just but it becomes that. great. Yeah. No, I, I, I. I get that. I think that there's, I, there's so many books I've read where I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bounce out at page 30 and I stick around for another five or 10 and then something happens and I'm in it again, you know, and then I finish it and I'm like, wow, I, you know, lots of books are like that where you feel like had I, had I stopped where I originally was going to stop, I would have missed out on this really, you know, awesome read or something. So yeah. Yeah. Hang in there readers. Yeah. I, I suppose. I suppose like it, it takes you know reading the whole thing to to pass uh, any a, a proper evaluation thing. It's just like yeah no I I like this and I think this is great or like yeah I, I guess I don't like this or or whatever and and I I really like this like I it has grown on me <laughs> Boris has grown on me like like radiation <laughs> seeping in. Ugh. Good good metaphor though yeah. I, I couldn't I couldn't resist. Appropriate very appropriate. Yeah. And, and I, I want to pull on that. I want you to mention that it is, and it is, a very sad novel. And, yeah. like, sad in, like, in, in the very ways that that word means, in, in terms of grief, in terms of loss and, and pain and challenge and frustration. Because, like, in, in terms of the words, but in terms of, like, I don't know, living and trauma and difficulty, like, it's there's just a lot of misery and a lot of pain, emotionally, psychologically, physically environmentally mm -hmm. you know with radiation like that I, I do like how yeah I, i'm gonna say it uh, it's a scene that happens later on but like when pavel destroys his uh dosimeter mm -hmm. i feel like that is it, it's such a brief scene but i feel like it's significant in that point of like yeah it's everywhere and it is contaminating everywhere and it's like there's the distinction it's not that important anymore yeah. And rather than, you know, carrying on and I guess taking care, I suppose. Right. Um, especially with Pavel sort of taking responsibility a, a little more from that point, a little before and, and that point on. But in a sense, like, although, it, and, and I, I'm not going to dispute that because I don't think it isn't sad. I think it's very sad. <laughs> uh, it's not entirely bleak. Yeah. Although it is still very sad. Yeah, no, you make a good distinction. It's not, it's not nihilistic. Yes. It's not bleak, but it is sad. I think there's a big difference. Yeah. No, I'm glad you said that. Should we say, do, should I say a little bit about what like the overall summary of the book is for people who feel sure. like, okay. So, because um, we've mentioned some names and some plot um, devices, I wanted to let people know if you're sitting there going, okay, but what's the book about? Who the hell is Boris? The book takes place in two places, Indiana, which is where I'm originally from in the States. And a made-up village in the central slash western part of Russia called Balm, B-U-L-M. And 
in Balm, where the book starts, there is a young guy in his 20s named Pavel who works in a call center for uh, nuclear emergencies or issues. So if you have something that's going on in your area where there might be some sort of a leak or you think there's something going on, you would call this emergency number and he would read from a script of pages and tell you what to do. Um, but he's also sort of living off his dead dad's state checks from when he worked. And so he's it's this sort of screwed up administrative issue that's sort of allowing him to just carry on doing really nothing. Um, and he's has no he's feckless. He doesn't have a direction. Yep. Um, and then he comes into contact with a woman in his village that he really has never noticed before. And she has a young, uh, ill son who they don't know what is causing it. Um, and he really wants to take the boy to the hospital because he thinks that's the right thing to do. And the mother thinks that he's cursed and that a hospital would never cure him. So she wants to try and figure out all these different ways to cure him. Um, and they slowly sort of fall in love. But in the meantime, there's this Boris character who's also in, in the village, and he's a speaker. And a speaker is somebody who says the T-words, and the T-words are this sort of series of – they're never revealed in the book. You're just meant to sort of imagine what they are. Words, not the same ones at any given time, but a type of language that can be spoken and just like folk healing, right? Except in this case, you literally – say something, heal a person, and the disease or the injury moves somewhere else into another person. So it's just constantly being spun around. And in a weird way, it's like you're just passing grief or, it, or the issue at hand onto somebody else. You're in relief, but you have to give it to somebody else, right? So it's this, hor this horrible chain of grief that continues on. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, in America, there is a a baker living in Indiana, who's also a writer of sorts, whose name is Alejandro Poe, P-O. And he meets a immigrant from Russia named Katya, and they fall in love. And she also speaks the words. And so and I'm not, I'll leave it there, but those two story threads intertwine um, as the novel goes on. These characters end up um, together and in, in certain ways so yeah it, i think that also is something that w w could probably put people off i shouldn't be saying that but it jumps back and forth between these two scenes or between these two locations but um i think i handled it well no i think so <laughs> i really like when when things start coming together and i, yeah. I won't say any more because i think it you did that in a really great way. And I'll mention it after we've done recording. Because yeah. I really liked how you did it. Yeah. And it was very subtle and very effective. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, but it is sad. A, because everybody loses something. Yeah. Or everybody is immiserated. Or, you know, I specifically wanted everybody in the book to not have money. Or a job that could give them money. And if they did have money, it was through a fluke like an administrative mistake where this guy was still receiving these really low level checks. But, you know, a baker in a small Midwestern town, I don't think they're rich. You know, a language tutor doesn't make a lot of money. You know, I don't know if Boris even has a job now that I think about it. And I don't think, I don't think Polina does either. She's the, the mother of the boy. 
And so there's just a lot of characters who just are either just living in, in poverty, which not doesn't sound um, thrilling, but I guess that's kind of the point because to what I wanted to say was like, you know, yeah, a lot of people don't have any money. And what is it, what is it that you're willing to do uh, to take care of you yourself and your family when you're in a situation like that? Yeah, I think, and I think the words are, are significant in that regard. Like, how do you, how do you make or or not make those uh, those choices or that or those sacrifices? Like, because as you mentioned, like you 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 speak them, and you don't really control where they go, what they do, mm-hmm. and 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 yet in a way you're not resolving that harm. You're you're displacing it. Like a lot of the characters put it like that, and. Is that morally okay? Is that significant, insignificant, indifferent? Uh, Boris, uh, at one point, goes ahead. It's like, it, it doesn't really matter. This, this, the, that exact harm is still there. And it, literally, sure, in a larger scale, I'm not sure. But it's whether the healing is worth it or not is a constant question that the characters, uh, the speakers, uh, some to, to a varying degree, and the, the the others who follow the speakers or who are with them at one point or another ask it, and, and the ones that know of it ask it or not. It's like, is this worth doing? Isn't right. it? The, the the morals of it are, are are never clear because they can't be given the, the actions and consequences of it. Right. There was a one point. So one thing I left out that I, is important is that Alejandro Poe, his nickname is uh, Han like Han Solo, Han has um, multiple sclerosis, which was a disease my mother had. Um, and it's, it's depending on which type you have, I mean, some uh, MS can be incredibly debilitating over time where you just end up basically paralyzed on a breathing tube in a hospital bed, which was the kind my mother and, and, and Alejandro in the book have. And then there's some where it's called um, relapsing remitting, where you people with the with that type of ms can have very bad days where they can't walk at all and then you know the next week they could be back on their feet um just depends and so the ms aspect is really important because i wanted a character who had a incredibly debilitating disease and one of the things that somebody told me who i forget who it was who's reading was like i don't believe that um if a character was around someone who could heal them this way that they wouldn't do it and and there's a scene in the book where uh, Alejandro doesn't really give his consent to be healed, but someone decides to do it for him anyway. Mm-hmm. And but it backfires, and so he doesn't. He's not healed. And then later on, and I'm I'll just say this. I'm not, if if you don't want to hear this, this is a bit of a spoiler, mm-hmm. I guess. Is that he himself learns the words Alejandro does, and someone said, "Well, why couldn't he just heal himself?" And I thought he could, but I think the spoiler is he doesn't he decides not to he doesn't allow anybody to heal him and there's a reason why towards the very end of the book which i'm not going to reveal all that someone you can get to that if you want to he doesn't he ends up he stays the same through the whole book he starts the book with ms or he finds out he gets ms in the beginning of the book and then by the end he still has it and part of why i did that and why i think that's realistic is is part of me was like I wanted that character to be healed through science, not fantasy. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, mostly because I was thinking about my 
like my mother who had it, there was all these things she tried to do in order to get relief or find a way around it. And they put people on trials or they get different surgeries or something. And, and, uh, and in a weird way, it sort of just reminds me of like grasping at straws in a weird way when really what you need is some sort of scientific discovery. Science needs to step forward and do something. Also, that's, that's another reason why one of the characters who's a speaker in the book rejects the words by the end of the novel and decides to become a nurse because again, it's the idea of, putting away fantasy in order to be more practical. The character wants to heal and save people, but doesn't want to engage in the moral quandary like you brought up, Frank, about is it right to use the words? The words are like a shortcut, right? I can heal somebody, but I have to fuck, I have to fuck somebody else over. Right. Sorry. I didn't know. I I didn't know if I curse. Uh, Sorry. No, feel free (laughs) to. So, but you know, it's, that's the thing was if you could do that, would you? You know, and I was on a different interview with somebody and they were like, would you ever use the words if you could? And I was like, I, I, I don't remember what I said, but now I think about it. I'm like, I don't know because it's yeah. so, it's everything's so fraught. It's like, well, what do you have a cold? If I have a cold and I heal a cold and someone else gets a cold and I don't have one, maybe that's okay. But if it's, if you have cancer and that cancer is going to go somewhere else, you know, that then things start to get a bit more complicated um well incredibly complicated you know yeah so yeah but that was what that's like the built-in moral struggle of the book is this whole like do should you use it or should you not use it and then on top of that they're making money off of it yeah. you know they're going around and they're meeting these people and they're um and they're making money off this this folk medicine for people and um and of course there's a couple scenes in there where it shows how that that backfires on them too. So a lot, a lot. (laughs) There are very few places where the words end up doing something good for somebody. Yeah. It's there's a, uh, I won't won't say, Uh, no, go ahead. I I feel like if someone you skip, a, give it, give it as, give us the least spoilery version. Ah, of I was just going to say there's a, there's a cruel irony a lot of the times. Oh yeah. Of course. Healings. Yes. Which is, Predictable out a mile away, but still, yes. when you read that, it's of course it does. Of course it does. Yeah, and I will say the one I don't feel bad about this is that there's a healing in the very beginning of the second part of the book, where a character heals um, a baby. Yeah. And that scene to me was the only one that I thought specifically. I did it on purpose. I wanted that to be a scene where there was actually good feeling. Yeah, that was sort of like, and it's in the very middle of the book. I, some sort of respite or oasis for people to feel a little good about the world, because it's a scene, little small scene of community on a train, and people are sharing things, they're eating, they're drinking, you know, they're helping each other, and I felt like that was, um, <laughs> I needed to have some sort of uh, warm center to this book that, whereas everything else was just you know, it, um, yeah, dangerous and and precarious and sad and weird and but yeah i think the whole sequence of the train carries a lot of that aspect of just like you know people together in a space and like they don't know each other but yet they're doing things together out of necessity but it's not i don't know i really like that entire sequence everything that happens in the train is really interesting i feel like you capture like 
trains as a special place. Yeah, I don't, and I, I don't know what train travel's like down in Brazil, but I mean, there, there is train travel in America. It's not like it used to be, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I wish it would come back. But train travel is so much more prevalent in other countries yeah. around the world. And trains are interesting. I like public transportation, period. Buses, yeah. trains, ships, you know, anything where people have to be together for a number of t- uh, for a period of time and they have to, like, you know, they're eating or using the bathroom or they <laughs> have to talk or sit. And I had watched lots of uh, footage of trains both in india and in russia where you know people are just either on top of the train or inside the train and and i read a lot of books about train travel across russia to trans-siberian um mm-hmm. railway where people would travel from one end to the other to you know, student travelers what it was like you know with a backpack and you're just you can lay in these open spaces where the you know there's just can be as many people as can fit into a room and they're drinking, they're playing games, chess, or they're reading books, or they're singing. People bring, you know, little guitars or little, you know, harmoniums or squeeze boxes or whatever, you know. And I don't know what that would be like now uh, in this age. Yeah. But at the time when I was doing the original writing of this, that was sort of like there was a great sense of communitas. And that's what I wanted was um, desperate for that, really, because... I think as I was really working seriously on this, I had left uh, the writing program that I was in where I had a very close-knit group of friends I saw all the time. Mm-hmm. And then I moved far away and I didn't have any friends except my, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife. And and so it was just – I was re- really relying on her for a lot of all of my social interaction. And so I, I was probably putting all this – I was like creating this these characters that I could – be friends with or or watch them suffer. <laughs> That's the other aspect. Is, is put, them the, put them under the microscope, yeah. But yeah, no, I, I think like, because I don't think we have very much of like long train journeys here. We could, like it's such a huge country, Brazil, but like we really could have like proper railways. As mm-hmm. it stands though, like the most I've had contact with is like the, the expanded area of Sao Paulo because it's really, really huge. And yeah. it's like the the metropolitan area is connected by the inner areas. I have a chaotic subway. Like the chaos, the subway lines under so in Sao Paulo are chaos. Like you compare that map with any other map. I mean, th- thinking like Moscow and, or even like London, the London Underground and others. Like it's it's a, it's a mess here. And you have like because it's sprawling, it's sprawling outwards and into the various neighborhoods. And you have the trains as like the extension of that into like neighboring cities and, and towns and like the area around it. But I've never had like a, a train traveling experience like long from like a you know like you sleep you dine in it. I can't imagine how long a train ride would be from say. Well, what what city are you in? I'm next to São Paulo. You're next which to is São in Paulo. the southeast. So if you were going from like São Paulo to like Santiago, like that would be like an insane train journey even if you're going to like yeah. how far how far by car is like buenos aires uh, i don't know from 14 here. 15 hours probably a bit more yeah it's insane i don't think we really understand i don't i don't think uh norte americanos have a, really any idea of how distant different cities down there really are and you know like i have friends who are from santiago and i was like oh 
maybe if I, I had some dream in my head, I was like, oh, maybe I'll go teach in, you know, Buenos Aires or something like that. And then I'll just go see them. And I was like, I looked it up and I was like, no, you're not going to because A, you have to go across. It's like a 15 hour car trip. And, and part of that is because you have to go over the, the Andes. And it's yep. just like you have to go over this crazy mountain range. And it's just not it's not feasible. You have to fly, really. And yeah. um so, yeah, trains are in that way. I was thinking in Brazil it's probably tough because so much of the country is for Well, hopefully it's still forested. Well, the, the, the thing is mostly that instead of doing railways during the 50s and early 60s, well, most of the 60s and onwards, they built motorways. Yeah. So we didn't get a good railway line. Mm-hmm. So it's a bad project, really. The car took over everywhere. It's the country. It's the... Yeah, we're, they're both countries of the car. I think everywhere is the the yeah is the seat of the car, and except in Europe, where they were able to get in lots of really good rail. So yeah, and I'm still resentful <laughs> over yeah, how things too. were done here. But it's very, I think it's very similar to the U.S. in that regard. But yes. like you had or still have some remains of uh, like a railway line or railway lines. We never really had those, not in mm-hmm. any decent scale. Cars are atomizing and isolating i really do think that the car culture is one it has a lot to do with why americans are the way they are because Mm -hmm. it's uh, materialistic in a bad way you the obsession with the car as a fetishistic object Uh, also you're in your own little universe you have your own food you're like you have your own little stuff you have your own climate you have your own music you have your own comfort you have your own smells you have your everything's yours and you're in your, your own little world and so when you're and when everyone's in their own little world on a highway or in a road or a city and something happens, <clears throat> excuse me, people like yelling at each other, you just so quick to get angry. Whereas I lived in Pittsburgh for five years, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I, we, I rode, I rarely was in a car. I just rode buses everywhere because they have a really great public transportation system. And when you're on a bus early morning after work, and someone starts throwing a fit or gets weird, you know, or gets cranky or mm-hmm. pissy or whatever, there are a lot of people around who are going to put that person in their place and be like, hey, sit down, shut up, be quiet. Like, you know, like we're here, yeah. we're all traveling together. There's a sense of public pressure that you're going to act right because, you know, everybody's been working eight hours a day or they're, you know, they just want to sit quietly on the bus while they go home or while they go to work or while they go to the store or something. Yeah. So I get that that sort of sense of like pulling together was was something I really to get back to the book was, was something I was really keen on because there's not a lot of car stuff in the book. I don't really like writing about cars per se. And the mm-hmm. long, there's a long section in the middle which is on the train, but that was because well for all the reasons I just said, but also because you can get people from A to B and they can still talk. Yeah. Right? In a way that they can't in a car. I think it's interesting, like the train as a sort of privileged space for for Boris and, and other characters as the space to like travel, both travel and like do the healing, really. Mm-hmm. Um, that's because I, I, I think especially now thinking about it, it, it makes a lot of sense because like it's this space where there's a lot of people, there's a lot, there's a weird there's a forming and a, uh, an unforming of community there that's very brief and and yet that it's still significant in a way, and it's a place of connection and, and contact. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting. Like I I like that a lot. Like mm-hmm. I, I 
it's something that I think like using public transport, both in terms of like possibility and community and, and especially in more in situations where there's not that much access to it, it it really builds character. Like I <laughs> I say this kind of jokingly, but it's true, like in a sense of like respect and understanding. Like I I have very vivid memories of catching the bus from uni at 6 p.m. And it was so crowded mm-hmm. that there was a point like you can't do that anymore, even before the pandemic, because uh, they started cracking down on the buses because they, they had very limited seats or a lot less seats because they were sort of an executive bus taking from right. different cities or from the capital to the, the satellite towns. Right. And you couldn't stand anymore and whatnot. But there's like, there were points where I couldn't, I couldn't barely get in. I had to like crouch down in a corner, and people like, and the people beforehand being really, or most of the time, like really accommodating. Like, no, we can do this. We can fit more people in. It's like yeah. w- we're gonna get home. Yeah, people are willing to help others. I mean, not all the time, but like on the whole, that's how it was. And so, yeah, yeah there was a part of that, and because ostensibly the the words that are spoken, the T words are meant to help people, but they are double-edged Yeah, obviously. So when you think you're doing something good, you're, you're probably doing something bad, which is why there, there are two uh, epigraphs in the book. The first one is from Philip K. Dick's Vallis, where he says, can I read this? Of course, by all means. Where the first epigraph, he says, I've always told people that for each person, there is a sentence, a series of words which has the power to destroy him. I realized, this came years after the first realization, that another sentence exists, another series of words, which will heal the person. If you're lucky, you will get the second, but you can be certain of getting the first. That is the way it works. On their own, without training, individuals know how to deal out the lethal sentence, but training is required to deal out the second. And... Hilariously enough, I found that after I'd already finished the book. Uh, I believe it. it or not. That's just how that works. And then the other one was from John Berryman. This was in the midst of writing the book, and I saw this. I knew this was going to go in somewhere. This is the epigraph to the second part of the book. Uh, John Berryman was a poet of the 20th century. <clears throat> Everybody's mouth is somewhere else. I know somebody's anus. Which was just trying to underline the fact that... um. <laughs> these wor- words have two sides to them right you can say something and make someone feel good but you can also say something and make someone feel b- bad or horrible and i know that's a trite observation to make but one that we probably could stand to have brought back to us over and over again because i think we sort of forget that i mean i know i do anyway so yeah and like it's 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 tangible in this case, like in the book, like the words that heal can quite often doom another. Yeah, and it's like, is is it worth saying these words? Are are these words valuable or are they damning? Right. Are they positive or are they ho- or are they atrocious and criminal? Is uh, I but uh, criminal is not quite accurate there, but to get that sense of it, that's like, are they something? I get what you be- mean praised or something to be condemned right and uh the book can't give any answer <laughs> i mean i i think it refuses yeah i don't i strayed from not straight i purposely didn't want to offer answers or solutions yeah i'm, I'm, I'm gonna read uh if you if you don't mind of course 
uh, one of the quotes that I, I got here, and I'll I'll edit. I think a bit about the end because I think it says a bit much about what's going on at, at the end of the book. But it's uh, it's just a sense of um, which is the one from chapter twenty eight, because I, I think it gets at the sense of like what we like and what we have, uh, and of course that draws at a larger sense uh, in our own world, but. In the book's world, it's also uh, relevant. Mm -hmm. What should have existed was a speaker who absorbed all the pain, who, like the sunflower splendid at Chernobyl, drank in all of the radiation and stored it. But that's still not enough. A speaker should transmute the illness into a banal matter, take a tumor and break it into a pile of pebbles, compost malaria into a teacup. But the situation said about a world where disease wasn't able to die and just swapped partners in an entropic dance in an entropic square dance constipated their mind. Because the only question he had left was who was calling the directions of that dance? And of course we, we don't we have no answer there. No. And uh, the question of uh, choice or, or divinity doesn't doesn't come up other than the, a bleak uh, remark, which is fair given the, the book <laughs> and the characters and the situation. But it, it's almost like what we'd rather have, what, what should there be, what should be the, the focus or the idea, or what should be the, the ideal speaker, is something that we don't have. And we don't even know if we could or can't have it. Like, it's, I think, and I'm not saying this as a defense to the speakers or justification, but because you mentioned before that, like, and they do that, they, they turn it a profit. Yeah. And in what ways is that in certain situations, situation of survival or a situation of taking advantage? And it's really, it's not that easy to make that judgment. I, I think that it brings a lot to that question of like, if you had that ability, if you could speak the T words, would you do them or not? And it's, yeah. it's easy to say, no, no, of course not. But wouldn't you really? And, and I think what you said before about and his MS and the other character who, who speaks is is significant in that regard that like it's it's difficult to think that like when you have someone close to you someone who's important to you w could you really stand to do nothing if you had the means to even knowing that they are quite double-edged mm -hmm. it's it's not a simple question to answer I think it's like it's a it's a much more significant moral dilemma than uh, the trolley problem yeah, and moreover, um, he is. There's an attempt to heal him, and he rejects it. There's an attempt to heal him, and it backfires. There's an attempt to heal him, and it can't happen for a number of reasons. Like I said, that I can't get into. But the first one, where someone tries to heal him and he stops it, the other character is disbelieving. Like, why would you not want to be healed? Why would you not want me to be able to do this for you? Uh, and I want to do it for you, and. I think for him it was he uh, this was this was disingenuous to people but I think it's true is that there are people who know they have a disease know that there's a way to get a cure and still will not go do it. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people like that. Um and I think there is something about affliction and disease where we sort of identify a part of ourselves with that after uh, a while now i'm not saying that you know if someone finds out they have stage four cancer they just refuse to go get um and they have a good opportunity of being 
uh, go into remission or healed that they wouldn't go get chemo or medicine or whatever. I'm not saying that. And that might happen, but more like, like just for example, my mom, you know, like she, when she was, there was things she could have done that would have helped her right away. She could have stopped smoking. She didn't. Um, she could have take. she could have done more with regard to uh, exercise. She could have, you know, um, tried a bunch of others. She could have put, entered herself into other, you know, uh, experimental trials or things like that. I just, there's, there's lots of people I know who, uh, or have known who've had some sort of affliction or a disease and they knew the way out and it, they didn't do it. And we do it every day. I mean, like, you know, yeah. like it doesn't have to be some sort of like a physical thing. It can be, there's tons of things that we know. Like I know I probably shouldn't spend uh, as much money as I do on used books. I should probably be taking that and putting that into a savings account and, you know, doing something more practical for future Kyle and his family, you know, and yet I still buy, you know, cheap used books. Is that, that's not a disease. Well, maybe it is a disease. I don't know. But I mean, you get my point, right? The idea oh, of, of someone is doing something that might not be the best thing for them in that moment, but they persist in doing it. That was something I really wanted to carry out through the book. Cause I don't believe the whole idea that um, when you see something that's good for you and you know, you should do it both, you know it and other people know it and they tell you that you're going to immediately do it. That's yeah. not how people operate that they, they just, they don't do that. We're not as persuasive as I think we'd like to think we are. <laughs> Yeah, and I think in that regard, like the way that the way that it, we see in the book, like that sense of like, no, but but this is disease is like it, it's a part of who I am. That sense, and, and I've read a bit about it in terms of like depression and that association that like, oh, this is also part of me, and if I'm not with this condition or this affliction, I'm no longer myself. Right, chronic diseases especially. Exactly, like that is that's not. It's not a simple no, but but you're not like it's it's difficult to understand and and to even like relate to that because the the person doesn't want that they don't want to feel that and yet they they deny themselves it's it's incredibly complicated and I I don't want to simplify it and I don't think the book does either like I I think it really shows how even alongside it's it's those two things like it's the difficulty to do something which would help you and make you feel better, which is also there. But mm -hmm. also this other idea that you connect with the disease that is, and, and when there is something you could more actively do about it and, and engage with it to, to try and, I don't know, fight it or oppose it or, or make yourself better. And that it's difficult to, to apply a judgment to that, but like, no, but, but no, you're, you're wrong about that. It's like, sure, but it's not that simple. It's not that easy it's a much more difficult connection into how the person sees themselves deals with mm -hmm. themselves and, and with their condition especially mm -hmm. in, a, in a chronic case yeah well said and, and i think again i think the book shows it well i, I don't think it's it's not a book is well I, I, i've been saying this a lot on on the show recently that like i i don't have any or many many or any answers for a lot of the things like i try to raise interesting questions and I think, and the book doesn't either. The book doesn't offer any real answers. Like it, it raises questions. Right. I just wanted to, I just wanted to frame questions. I really actually don't feel like I have, it's not my job to offer answers. Um, I mean, I'm a teacher um, and I, my students often get really angry 
and have when like why don't you just tell us what the answer is or to this whatever if, if i bring up a question i'm like well because i don't i don't have the answers i'm asking the questions along with you because i think yeah. that's actually more productive i think it's better to be able to ask really good questions than it is to get sort of pat answers right so yeah. to me if i read a book and it and it draw and it brings up really good enduring questions i find that to be a lot better than say having some sort of really well uh tied neat answer at the end of it i'm not because i don't <laughs> answers are so complicated and i'm not smart enough to come up with them anyway <laughs> so um i would just probably do better to try to come up with some sort of a of a of a series or a complex or a sequence of questions and that's yeah. i guess in some sense what the what the book is yeah, yeah and i think that's and, and there are a lot of those questions in, in terms of like radiation in terms of living in terms of survival and in, in relationships a lot of in different strange relationships and it's I don't know, I, I think that is a more interesting or, or more, as you put it, like a, a long-lasting effort because answers are, a lot of the time, like if given, I don't know, answers are really difficult and even when yes. in their best attempts can still be just as temporary and changeable and, mm -hmm. and questions can last longer in that regard. Like, I don't know, that, that notion of like framing better questions or framing the question in a more interesting way. Um, and especially for what, we're doing here in terms of a conversation and presenting the book and you and these ideas it's a way of like i'm not i don't want to say it's like oh this is what the book is about or these are the things or these are the main themes or the main ideas of like sure i want to point out certain things or certain ideas but i don't i know something that i've learned a lot is like rather than closing off i'd rather open things up yeah no i agree 100 percent. yeah and oh it, it's i really like this book I, I it's it it brought a lot of interesting questions and like i think talking about this book has made me like it more uh which is a good thing like it's good it's, yeah because it, it, it's that thing like uh, and one of the it brings me back to starting the podcast it's like it's reading it and talking about it and, and sharing it with other people and like that's books that's, that's words we're, we're saying more words well, I was going to say you. Uh, I was really impressed because you sent the like a list of all these things, uh, and I was just sort of like I, I said this earlier before we started recording. I said you know my book better than I do now. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's very impressive uh, the things that you read into it uh, or or got out of it. I guess I don't know. I was just um, that's the thing though is like you always feel like, and I I wondered you know if you it's called the left page pod. And it's interested in left issues. Yes. And I didn't know if you read anything in out of the book that was particularly left or leftist. Or if it was just, I just like this book and therefore I'm going to talk about it. Because I didn't really know if how political the book is other than, you know, whatever is implicitly there, I guess. I, I think, like, and this is something that, like, I've learned fairly early on, or especially as I delved into the matter as, like, because the the podcast and thinking about literature has made me want to study and work with literature. And I'm doing my MA on it as a historian. And to work on it with the care and attention, it's like, you know, like, what does the text do? What What is it there? And what can I think about it? Rather than like, oh, no, this is what it says. Or this is what it's showing or reflecting. It's like, no, what it's, 
what's written there and what can it lead me to think or, or consider and which, which has taught me a lot about respecting the books yeah. um and with this books as well because while i think that the left page as what thinking about these questions they've become i don't they've definitely not gone away like they're, they're always there but framing framing it differently i think is the sense it's like sure there may not be like oh this evident question or this obvious uh left thing or position or, or idea here but in, in interesting ways can i think about questions that are relevant to me or, or left politics in a wider sense in terms of like community and um society or or, or economics or like this question of, of misery and collapse or, or energy and environmentalism so like i don't think that any particular question like jumped out at me so to speak but I guess in in a way as the interesting ideas and things that I, I want to think about that are mm. useful or interesting to a left position or left ideas and literary and history and ideas in general. And I, I think that's the wider stance that I've taken more recently. Mm -hmm. Like it's not, yeah. it's going to show up. Like it's in a sense, like the the left position is mine and in the outlook that I look at things but the way that i think about them when reading and talking about them has been varied has been varied and varying a lot in accordance to what we're talking about well the the book i guess i guess one of the things i didn't write it with a left position in mind mm -hmm. but i but i am on the left and i wrote the mm -hmm. book so i guess it's in there but like did you there was a there's a line and i always wonder how many people picked this up who read the book is it this? There's a throwaway line in there that says something like, um, Ant "Antarctica got its first McDonald's a few months ago, or something like that." Right? I sort of just mention it, and one of the things that I wanted to do with a with a line like that was give people a wider sense of what the world that this book takes place in is like, without having to tell you anything other than that. Because if there's a McDonald's in Antarctica, then you already have to figure out what does it take to build one there, right? Yeah. And also, that also means that the book takes it as a given, because the book is not interested in explaining it to you, right? So, True. you know, or that there's this large swath of the country, or at least the states, that's unusable um, for a number of reasons. Just all these elements of, and I say that more because um, I'm pretty deflationary about, again, offering solutions a because i don't mm -hmm. i don't have a mind for it not not solutions just like well wide-scale solutions i can't solve that kind of stuff i get it but but trying to let people know um like have you, you read 2312 by kim stanley robinson did you read ministry uh, for the future not yet i, I know generally of, what yeah, it's about okay, but i haven't so read it yet just the idea of just the, the basic gist of that book is that that Robinson comes up with is that there is this ministry that sort of meets sub Rosa with different representatives from over the world that come together and say, listen, we need to start thinking about the future as a thing that has rights, right? Future people have rights because they're not born yet. So we need to be taking them into consideration and start working towards doing things and in for the future. Right. So one of the things that I think, speculative fiction can do is offer up scenarios and images to get people aware of where you could go what the future could look mm -hmm. like they're just different um directions 
if that makes any sense. Yeah. But the problem is that, as people have pointed out, right, we've had Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, and now it looks like the country, arc, my country, is starting to go towards that. And people are like, no, these are not playbooks. These are not blueprints for how to make horrible, shitty worlds. They're warnings about how to go mm-hmm. away from them, you know? And I think, again, those are double-edged too, mm-hmm. right? You always hear things like um, Elon Musk is like, oh, I'm a big fan of Ian e. M. Banks's culture novels. And I think Jeff Bezos says the same thing too. I don't know if you've ever read Banks's science no, fiction. No, I'd like to. I've heard of them before. Yeah, they're very, you know, they are about as far left as you can get. You know, they are, they're post-scarcity. And yet here you have Elon Musk who says he's going to vote for, you know, the most right-wing politicians in our country. Um, in the next election cycle, it doesn't really make it doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. It's almost mm-hmm. like you didn't even read the book. So you have these, you know, titans of industry or shitheads of industry who are like praising the most far left science fiction and yet haven't taken a single goddamn lesson from them. I don't know where I'm going with this. I guess all all to say that I think it doesn't matter if you offer up the the most wonderful vision of utopia; it still can be shredded. Oh, by the by the reader and so you know having a perspective in the novel whether that's left or right i think is or no political direction whatsoever mm-hmm. might not matter because like you said it's just, it just depends on what you're who's reading it and what they're taking away from it and yeah all that stuff so i think and like I've I've talked about this on on Twitter and on other episodes a lot i have my uh, ongoing crusade against dystopias and uh certain ways of looking at dystopias or utopias dystopias i i'm I'm a utopian i'm presenting at the utopian societies conference this week so (laughs) i have my my ground uh Mm -hmm. my field uh but and and i'll 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 go on like what i think boris well or what i don't think boris is or at least why it didn't struck me as that but like I think it's a lot of more than about the dystopias themselves than about how how we can think or how a lot of the time we think about dystopias or writing dystopian stories, and that which annoys me the most. Mm-hmm. Um, but regardless of that, I think uh, rather or whether a book itself is showing one thing or another, like the the engagement or or the value of it varies a lot, and I think Boris. Is it didn't strike me as a dystopian novel. It struck me as sad. It struck me as painful. You're and really yet, right. the the considerations, and I think in that point about the personal and, and the specific questions about the words and, and the, the various relationships and even the moral quandaries there, they they struck me as a lot more relevant than like, oh, this is just a negative v- v- vision of society and this warning. Or even like thinking about how how, how the utopias show up, it's like oh, this better vision of for world to come rather than like an exploration of a different space that has more problems and yet other problems which are still current and yet adding more right. elements to think about them. No, you're right. It's not a dystopia, and I and I think, and I specifically wanted to show a world that was worth living in. But that also, I just, I think there's too many novels that I read. I say this and immediately I'm only thinking of the examples that prove my example wrong. But I feel like there are a lot of novels where people are, got things figured out, 
or they're on their way to figuring it out. They only have a minor issue. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you have to go to really different subgenres of like horror or fantasy or science fiction to get these weird dystopian things. But sort of the straightforward literary novel, quote unquote, doesn't really mess around with people in compromised or immiserated situations most of the time. You know, it's sure. like, and I, there's reasons for that, which obviously we don't have to get onto on a podcast. But um, I guess what I was trying to say was I I didn't want to leave people with a, a, an incredibly pessimistic ending. And in fact, the novel did end very pessimistically. The original ending of that was the uh, ending of the penultimate chapter. Oh. Yes, which would have been very different. Yeah. It just, it just ended there. And I thought, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. That's not the end of the story. And so I added, I have went through various versions of different chapters after that and changed things around. And it ended up being where it is now. But I needed to have an ending that allowed a moment of opportunity and possibility for the characters. Mm-hmm. If that makes any sense. Because no, to it me, makes a lot. <laughs> I just think there's a lot of... there. I know I'm being very vague about it, and if you've not read the book, it doesn't do you any good. And if you have read the book, you're probably like, what are you talking about? But, you know, specifically, I was thinking about the the female characters in the book. I wanted the women to have a very – I wanted them to have more possibilities because the men were really crowding them. There's a line in in the book, actually, where Katya Mirov, who's the immigrant from Russia to America, she says at one point, I'm done with men – surrounding me she was like she makes this statement like i'm done having men all around me and they're like making these decisions for me which is funny because i'm an author i'm a guy making a decision for her but <laughs> the, you know she she needs to get away and this is why she you know um leaves her partner and she leaves the country and decides to go somewhere else she's just done having all of these men around her doing all these things not even controlling her decisions but like having to be the things that she bounces her decisions off of. She's just reacting to this. And, um, and I was really sort of, you know, I I wanted to write something into the book that responded properly to that. So that's, there's just all those types of things in the book, you know, the way Mm -hmm. these characters react to each other or the way they deal with agency or take agency away from other people or are worried about the agency that they do have. Um, you know, and that's between parents and children, brothers yep. and sisters, lovers, um, friends, you know, family. There's a whole sub story that we haven't even mentioned yet where um, they're the Mirovs, this family, the husband and wife and sister and the daughter and the grandmother are this family that live in Russia. This is Katya's family. And she leaves them because there is this nuclear disaster. And her brother decides to go be a liquidator, which are these people who run into the fire to put it out. Of course, this, if anybody had watched the miniseries of Chernobyl, you know that those people, it was just a death sentence. Um, whether that was on three days after they were at the site or three months or three years. And this this nuclear accident tears this family apart, literally and figuratively. Um, and, and so that was sort of like, okay, what am I, all the decisions that are being made in that family, 
whether they're going to be healed, whether they're going to go fight this fire, whether they're going to stay, whether they're going to move, whether they're going to do all this stuff, right? All that swirled around. So it's, there's both practical elements there, things that people really do, like, are we going to move? Are we going to try to make more money? Are we going to try to take care of ourselves? And then there's the whole fantastical element of like, should we have this person heal them? Should we do X, Y, and Z, right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So but then nothing yeah. ends up, nothing ends up good for those people though, unfortunately. That's not necessarily true, but yeah, uh, yeah. we won't go into it because it's. I won't give away. There is some good, but there's some bad. Let's just assume everything's bad. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah, the tone is quite clear. It, it's yeah. sad, um, but I think that's the difference uh, a lot. In, in, at least in some in some uh, in some dystopias or some dystopian fiction, or at least how it shows up a lot of the time. We talked about that. While it is, it ends. It's not as pessimistic as it could have, but it's not great. But right. there's this, there's still the space for that possibility. There's not really optimism, but there's some hope, um, even if small or, or contained or specific. And I think that is still significant. And, and that shows up like in small ways throughout the story. And I won't go into it, but in Pavel's actions a lot of the time, there is mm-hmm. that sense of hope. And even in what uh, Katia is uh, doing uh, or sort of, showing or wanting to do and as you said this is not going to make any sense to the people who haven't read it but uh, I, I think it's worth mentioning that there is still even in these lives that are there are in immense difficulties that have that are dealing with misery and pain uh, and suffering there are still small spaces or still small moments or still attempts at hope and they're not they're not vain they're not well, not without significance, and I, I didn't pick up on that when I read it. And they're small and they're personal. And exactly. That's the thing that was I was trying to get across was like if there's a mo- if there's anything in the book where something good happens, it's between two people, in a quiet moment, mm-hmm. where a person gives another person a book, or another person gives a person uh, a pastry, or another person gives another person a hug, or gives them food, or attends to them in some real material way you know um whereas everything that happens in the book that's negative is something that's spun out of this immaterial aspect of the words most Mm -hmm. of the time and i think part of that and i'm just thinking of this now is like that i was talking about the immiseration of most of these characters in the Mm -hmm. book and it's true but the aspect of that is not all of that is bad. You want those people to not have to live like that, but that doesn't mean that you treat them as if they are already destitute or that somehow they're morally corrupt or bankrupt or have no way to be good or happy in those moments and those situations. Yeah. Because all of those characters, you know, whether it's again, fantastical element, there's a whole city in this book that's just ir- built with irradiated material and the people who live there, this is, that's the most wackadoo part of the book. And the it people is. who live there just sort of are accepting of it. And there's a reason why you'd have to read the book to find out. But there's also um, these people, these sort of refugees that live in these irradiated uh, e-waste sites. And what I mean, what I mean by e-waste is I've read about these places in China where, you know, when you throw away telephone cords or you throw away keyboards or anything that has to do with electronic technology they go into the especially with all the lithium 
from batteries and all the different chemicals. They all go to these sites in China where like all these things would like corrode and come together, but people would live there like in a dump site and they would just scavenge and take things and sell them and put them together. And I've seen places like this that exist all over the world, but like specifically these e-waste sites were existing in China. They've closed them down now and they don't allow people uh, to live there. So the Chinese government says, I don't know, but, um, and there's one of these that I sort of fashion in the book, you know, and even those people who live there are, there's a way to survive. People do survive. You know, people yeah. live, they try to find happiness where they can, even if they're living in these really sort of destitute, uh, no, not destitute. I just said they're not destitute. These sort of really just incredibly compromised uh, situations. Yeah. But they're still human. Yeah, exactly. I do want to say I, I only got maybe about a couple minutes left before I have to go. No, that's fine. I, I think I was going to sort of wrap up anyways. Like okay. I think we're about an hour and a half, something along those lines. Yeah, about about an hour and 20, which is fine. Um, but yeah, I think, I don't know, you have any sort of closing comments or remarks? I guess I'll ask you. I mean, <laughs> is there anything that you, is there anything you want to know about the book that I didn't answer or that, or that you, that the, that from, from, from reading it didn't give you? No, I, I don't. I think the book presents itself really well. Like I. Okay. I just don't want, and I don't want anybody to be unsatisfied. That's all. Yeah. Ah. I think like your vague comments of it on Twitter were all I knew about it, and I was like, okay, <laughs> this piques my interest. Let's do this. Um, and what I found was something a lot more interesting, and like certain questions, I like them a lot, even mm-hmm. in the, that wacky, wacky section you mentioned. I think yeah. that's really interesting. I say wacky. It's not. <laughs> they're going to think it's goofy. It's not wacky. It's, it's not. It's not. It's it very is, serious. It is, it's, it's just the most fantastical part of the book. I really tried to, yeah. you know, that's the part of the book where the the high gear of fantasy comes in. But the you will buy it because by that point you've already read 175, 180 pages or whatever. So you're okay with it. Yeah, that's it, it doesn't strike you as that odd when you're reading it. Right. Although it is probably the strangest section. It is the strangest section, yeah. On Yay. purpose. <laughs> but yeah, I think like other than that, it's it's really interesting and just I mean the question about words and choices and situations and these small uh these small small moments of like possibility and something uh, moments of smiling, I guess, br- yeah. or brief smiles. They're just as important, even in these miserable situations. And I think that's mm-hmm. significant in that thinking about them makes me appreciate this novel more. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's just, it's a really interesting book. And it's not something I expected when I started reading. It's not something I expected as I still read it. And it ended up being not what I expected when I finished it. That's like the best recommendation you could probably give to the book that it constantly was overturning your expectations i'm glad that it did that yeah that's good i'm glad yeah i i do heartfeltly recommend the book yes thank you see go out and go out and buy it's only 2.99 on kindle yeah it was it was very cheap yeah there you go that's like to keep it that way cheap and and unexpected if if I can ask you a sort of final and very cruel question, which, which you can refuse to answer, of course, do you have any other or, I don't know, any future fiction plans? 
Oh no, I always do. Yeah. So um, right now I'm in the I'm revising or doing fixing edits, doing edits, whatever you want to call it, for a novel that I wrote, which is um, was the longest thing I'd ever written, over 400 pages, which I mean for me is long. And the edits I got back on it were like, you know, this is probably a 300 page book. And I'm like, okay, sure. So working on that. It's again, another, uh, it's called enter the peerless. It's another book that is starts off in a realistic sort of fashion, but ends up sort of progressive, progressively getting weirder. The premise, I can tell you the premise is, um, about a guy who, because of debt ends up becoming a sort of really cheap Craigslist online private investigator and gets hired by a woman to find out why 29 people have entered into a mobile home next to hers. They've gone in and they've not come out and they, there's just no way 29 people could have gone into a trailer and not come out over a series of weeks or months. And so she's hired him to find out what the hell is going on. And so it starts from there. 29 people go into a place no one comes out so so it, it's a it's already different than anything i've written before there's a sort of detective quality you know um it's a very it's in first person it's got very voicey so it's but i'm i'm having fun editing it and i'm enjoying that i wrote a sort of spiritual thematic sequel to the nothing that is uh, which was the first novella that I published last year. And I'm kind of figuring out what I want to do with that, whether I'm going to self-publish it or mm-hmm. see if somebody else wants it. I don't know. So, and then um, I've got a couple of ideas for the next book I'm going to write, but I'm not going to share those yet because <laughs> I don't know enough about that. So no, that's, that's sensible. Uh, but yeah, no, thank you. That's that, uh, I think that's on, on what's next or what might be next. And that's already a, an extremely creepy pr- creepy premise. Yes, on again, on purpose. That's what I want. So, good. It, it's working. So yeah, uh, as I... Do you have any final comments before I sort of take us home? Um, if anybody wants to check out uh, what usual junk is rattling around my brain, I'm on social media... Um, at Bleak Housing, both on Instagram and Twitter. So come by, say hi. And like I said, pick up the book. Boris says the words. Yeah. Let me know what you think. Yeah, please do. And and feel free to let me know too and what you find <laughs> with this episode as well. And yeah, like uh, go listen to The Left Hand of Le Guin as well. Yeah, The Left Hand of Le Guin. Listen to my show, Left Hand of Le Guin. It's, this first season is almost over 10 episodes. Uh, we are slowly going to be reading everything by Ursula K. Le Guin. Uh, first season was fantastic. I'm just so thrilled that people have been listening and reacting the way they have. So, yeah, that's available on you know iTunes, Spotify, Google. Listen, review, like, share. Please do. Like <laughs> I, I need to catch up, but the problem was that a lot of the books I haven't read yet. So I'm like, okay, I want to read these before I start listening. Um, because it's, I feel like I, I, although I did listen to the Wizard of Earthsea before reading it, and mm-hmm. I really, because I wanted to listen to your show, and I yeah. had to listen to the first episode, and great book. But yeah, it's, oh, I, I, 
the other things I've listened from from the show have been great. So I, I really do recommend it a lot. And it's also Le Guin, like, what can I say? Yeah, can't go wrong. Can't go wrong. Working with good material. So yeah, um, go go buy Kyle's book. Go check out Boris Says the Words. I, I do recommend it. It's strange. It's weird. It's interesting. It's good. Um, and go follow his work and listen to Left Hand Le Guin. Uh, from from my end, you you can always find me on on Twitter at Frank Gothic, where I'm chatting about fiction, utopia, my anger dystopias or dystopian <laughs> studies uh, all of the time, but also about other stuff like the situation in Brazil and whatnot, and just stuff I like. Um, and you can follow the the show's proper Twitter, which is still me uh, at Left Page Pod, and. Yeah, you can find me on Patreon as well at patreon.com forward slash left page where I put some other stuff on, on academic writing or in terms of other reads that won't necessarily make it into an episode, be it because of time or different type of reading. And that's the reading corner and other moments in terms of writing and writing fiction and a bit on even writing uh, academic stuff, which is the writer's desk. So yeah, feel free to check those out. Uh, there are quite a few of them which are open and uh, some of them on the main podcast feed. So do check those out if you're interested and if you can support us. If you can, that's fine. And because this is the episode of July, next month in August, we should have a special surprise. Uh, and uh, I'm going to tell Kyle after we're done. But for most listeners, there's this interesting stuff. The, the good things go coming on. So yeah. Thank you so much for coming again, Kyle. Like it's it's been lovely to chat with you and, and chat about this book. It, it's been Likewise. great. Likewise, thank so, you. I appreciate yeah. it for me on. Thank you so much, and uh, yeah, thanks everyone for listening. And till the next one, bye bye. <laughs>